Hey everybody. Hopefully, uh, can everybody hear me? Type in yes. Just one or two of you type in yes. That's the case. I forgot if I checked my default microphone. Just one person type in yes. Don't hear anybody, see anybody saying that. Let me see. Speakers, internal microphone. Can somebody type in yes if you can hear me? Okay, there we go. We're good. Okay, that's good. Thanks, guys. Just wanted to make sure. I didn't want to talk for 10 minutes, and you guys are like, I can't hear him. Um, okay, so my name is Andrew Kraus, and I co-founded InventRight with Stephen Key 20 years ago, and we've been coaching and mentoring inventors ever since. We've had students in over 65 countries in that time. I can see tonight I already have people from some different countries, somebody from the U.K., I think somebody in the Middle East, um, different places. So that's fantastic. Um, and before we get started, I just wanted to talk about the basic basics. So for some of you that haven't um, been watching our YouTube show, read our books, haven't done one of these live streams with me before, um, basics of licensing is you're renting or you're leasing your product. And just bear with me, guys, because I know a lot of you guys know this. It'll only take two seconds. When you're licensing, you're renting or you're leasing your product to a company. You don't sell it because if they don't perform, you get it back. And they invest their money. They use their workforce and they use their existing distribution. So you get the money, the workforce and the distribution. Distribution meaning if they're in 20,000 stores, you're in 20,000 stores. So to me, growing up in Silicon Valley where it's all venture vulture capital, I call it vulture capital. And for some types of endeavors you need that um licensing is very refreshing um it's very it's more clean cut um you're getting everything in one place you're not somebody giving you money to start this business from scratch with no distribution you have to hire employees you're taking tons of risk and very few people will give you money unless you take a lot of risk too so maybe you're mortgaging your house and home and everything and so licensing is very low risk with very high potential return. You will not license every single product you ever work on. Nobody does. But it's a very good way of being creative, getting your product out to companies that can, can manufacture and market it, and receiving a royalty per unit. So every quarter, usually the way that we have our students set up the contracts is every three months, every quarter, you get paid a, a royalty on the units that they sell. So when they make money, you make money. So let's, I already see you got some incredible questions in here already. So let's get going. So we're gonna do a whole hour. Um, if you guys have enough questions, if not, we'll, we'll finish early. Um, but usually we always end up going an hour. So it should be a lot of fun. I should have gotten some more water. I think I'm low on water, but I, I'll survive. I'll do it for you guys. Um, Saeed is the first question. Hi, I have an idea about a food packaging. Should I license it to the food company or to the company making the packaging for them? Probably the company making the packaging and the company making the packaging that the food goes in is probably making, um, could make that same package for a bunch of other companies. So, but they could also be your licensing it to them. Um, they can sell it for you to that company. Also, you can, you could approach the food company, show it to them. They're very interested. And then you could they say, well, but I don't know. Then you go to the um, packaging company that's making their packaging and you get them to approach them as well. So you could approach them both, but you're probably going to be doing a license to the company that's doing the packaging for them. And maybe that one food company is the only one they'll do it for, or maybe they'll do it for 10 other companies. Um, of course, you don't have the unique packaging, but if you've got a unique packaging product, you might not want to, and I don't normally say this, you might not want to limit yourself to one company. Maybe that company that's making the food packaging could make it for 10 different companies that uh, package peas, frozen peas or whatever it is. And you might not want to limit yourself there. So I would just throw it up against the wall with the companies that are actually making the product, showing the innovative packaging, see if there's interest level, and maybe they'll introduce you to the 
packaging company makes their packaging, and also the contract packaging manufacturers that can also help you make an introduction, especially if the uh, food company is hard to get a hold of. So I would go after both, Saeed. Um, so I'm going to do one more of your site. You got a lot of questions in your site, good ones too. Um, I'm going to go to somebody else, Saeed, and then I'll come back to you, okay, because you've got a ton of good questions in there. Um, Matthew says, should we worry about a company licensing our product and only in order to squash it to keep competition um, for other similar product products they carry? You know, if you're an InventRights student, that would never, ever happen because there are certain performance guarantees that the company you license to has to make. Now, I've talked to inventors, not our students, that have signed contracts, and if the company was not ethical, they could just sit on it and do nothing. There's many, many ways that you can guarantee that a company can never sit on it. Because like I said, Matthew, um, you're never selling your idea. You're renting or leasing it. If they don't perform, you take it back. And that's why you always want the patent to be in your name, too. You don't want to assign the patent over to them. So um, one of the biggest guarantees, the most prominent that we use, there's many other forms, is minimum guarantees. And so, and these are minimum amounts they need to sell and pay you on, regardless, of, even if they're not selling a single unit. So let's say they're, they're not selling the product. But the minimum guarantees, and usually those are a fraction of what they say they can sell. So you kind of gauge it. There's many ways of, of discussing with them what they think they can do. And then you take one-tenth or one-fifth or a fraction of what you th they think they can do and you think they can do. And you say, well, you need to pay me this minimum guarantee regardless of what you're selling. So if they sold zero units by the time in which it was supposed to, they were start, supposed to start paying you royalties, they would still need you to pay you that $5,000, $8,000 quarterly every three months, even if you didn't, they didn't sell one. So now don't think that you're limited to that amount. That's just the minimum amount they need to pay you, even if they didn't sell one. That's what a minimum guarantee is. Now, with the way royalties work, if they sell 200,000 units in a quarter, they're going to pay you your royalty, agreed upon royalty on those amount of units. So what it does is... Even big companies, they don't want to be paying you every three months for something that they're not even selling because they failed to launch. So that is one very easy way to guarantee that they can't just license it and sit on it. You should never, ever, ever sign a licensing contract without minimum guarantees. Okay. Oh, and then just a little disclaimer. Um, anything that I share tonight is not legal advice. If you're seeking legal advice and if you, before you do anything, please contact patent attorney or licensing attorney. Um, so that's just my little disclaimer there. Um, so there are other ways you can guarantee that as well, Matthew, but if you have the minimum guarantees in there, it, don't think some big company is going to just license your product just to sit on and pay you those minimums. Now, I, I never had it happen to one of our students, but it could. Maybe they're like, well, we're okay with paying them $50,000 a year and not selling one. Uh, Pretty unlikely. So you should you should be okay with those minimums um, in some respect. But a lot of it is done by interviewing the company, getting a feel for it, getting them to tell you what their plans are. You can see they're moving forward. They're taking action with moving the project forward. Um, I've never had it happen to one of our students in 20 years. Could it happen? Yeah, it could. But if the minimums are high enough, they're not going to want to keep paying you. Say it's 50000 a year. And for five years, they're going to pay you a quarter million just to squash your product. I guess it's possible, um, but never seen it happen before. Um, Adam, hi, Andrew. When negotiating a licensing agreement, what are some of the terms that are usually discussed first? Also, what are the terms usually best left until further into the negotiation? You know, this is just something I was talking to an inventor about the other day. It's not a normal thing. And usually inventors don't end up wanting to do this. But I talked to an inventor just the other day. and said, oh, you know, but I want to retain the rights to sell it in this little area over here, you know. And, and I'll give them over here and here and here, but I want to sell it over here. And what I said is I said, great, that's perfectly fine. 
but I would never discuss that up front because then there's any, any perception that you think this is your baby that you're going to want to sell it on Etsy or some rinky dink thing, which I, you know, usually when I talk to inventors and they, they talk about wanting to do that, Oh, but I still want to sell over here because they're not selling there. I'm like, yeah, they'll probably agree to that because it's not going to hurt their sales. But I wouldn't bring that up front because it it creates this perception that you're not willing to let it go, you know. So, but share it later when the deal's almost done. Yeah, that would be the appropriate time to share that sort of thing. That's a weird little side note. I just talked to an inventor the other day on that, so it's the only reason why I'm bringing it up. Um, I think that one of the things you don't want to discuss is nitpicky little things like, you know, oh, it has to be purple. It can't possibly be pink. If like they, well, I think we want to make this pink with flowers on it. And you're like, oh my God, no, like just let it go for a bit. Get more of the more important deal points done. Um, One of the important things that we share with folks, our, our students, is that the first thing you want to do when you get interest from a company is not go back and forth via email. You want to get on the phone and talk to them. So what this verifies is it verifies that they are taking, and you say, can we do a five-minute phone call? It's never five minutes. It's going to be probably at least 10, 15 minutes. But when they take the time to get on the phone to talk to you, it accomplishes a couple of things. It shows that they're really interested. When they just email you and they ask you for all this stuff, anybody can do that. It takes them just a few minutes, and it's not moving the deal forward. So it's not that you don't want to give them the things they're asking for. It's that it's not moving the deal forward. One thing that shocks a lot of people with licensing is that you as the inventor are way more responsible for moving the deal forward than they are. You're like, well, Andrew, this, these are, it's a big company. I can't tell them what to do. I'm not saying you're going to tell them what to do, but a lot of marketing managers, they don't do licensing deals every day, so they don't know how to move it forward. So you're more responsible when, for instance, when you're an event rights student for moving it forward than they are. And so you know what process. So what we tell our students is you're walking them through your process more than they are through theirs because quite often they don't have a process. If they have a process, it's not quite clear and they're not sharing it with you. So you need to kind of move them through your process. So an important part of that is getting on the phone every single time and not going back and forth. You're so excited somebody's interested and they're like, oh, send me your patent, send me your prototype. I would never, ever do that send them either you want and it's not that oh my god if they see my patent they're going to screw me or oh if i give them the prototype they'll lose it break it they they could easily do it's that it doesn't move the deal forward and quite often it's not even what they need or want right away they just didn't know how to get the conversation started and now you're not guiding the negotiation you're not guiding the discussion you're not setting the pace and so that freaks a lot of people out but so this is the biggest misperception adam is you think Oh, well, they're interested, so they'll guide me. No, they won't. Most deals, if it was up to the company to guide the inventor and you just followed whatever they told you to do verbatim, almost all the deals would die. Only when they're super interested would those deals get done. That's why our students get deals done when other inventors don't because they're doing the right things to move the deal forward. So and one of the worst things you can do is just start going back and forth via email and not get on the phone. Another thing that getting on the phone accomplishes is that now you're a person. You're not just an email. You're not just a product. You're a person. And they, they're going to treat you as such. And especially, you need to let them know you're not a wacky person, a wacky inventor. So just by being easy enough to talk to, you don't need to be a captain of industry they're going to be like, oh, this isn't like that crazy guy that was all controlling and saying crazy stuff. This guy seems pretty um, easy to work with. And if I have to introduce him to somebody else in the company, I'm not going to be embarrassed. Or if I ask him for something, I think he's going to accommodate me so I can get that over to Bob in the company. And he's not going to make me look bad. So a big part of what you're trying to do on that first call is – establish some rapport to basically show you're not a wacky inventor because they're out there and you you don't want to be that person. You want them to be easy enough to deal with. We had one of our students, I don't know, she's probably not watching because she's on her own these days, 
But um, Dana mentioned she had a, a licensee and they did a call. She'd been talking to them quite some time about the product and things. And they did an entire call that at the end of the call, they said, good, you passed the test. And she was like, what test? And they were like, they said it straight up. Most companies won't do this. The crazy inventor test. So they asked her a bunch of questions like red flags, bad experiences they had with inventors in the past. And she answered all those questions. They're like, you passed with flying colors. But they were ready to not move forward with the entire project if there was too many red flags there. If there was too many red flags of the problems they've had in the past with inventors. So um, now I'm not saying these things to make you guys believe that you need to come across as super sharp or super like as a captain of industry or anything, because you don't. You're the creative. You're the creative person. You have something they don't have, but you need to be easy enough to talk to and work with. It doesn't mean you won't disagree with them on something, especially when you get into negotiation, but you need to, you need to come across as easy enough to work with, not have these red flags that other inventors have given them in the past. Um, so let's go with the next. When you type your questions in, if you got some sort of handle, just type your first name in too so I don't have to address you by the handle. So this handle is marketing guy. For companies that have inventor submission portals that only permit U.S. submissions, for example, Hasbro, is there any way a person outside the U.S. could go about getting their idea to a company like this? So Hasbro came on for one of the free webinars that Steve and I did. We're bringing on a lot of different companies to talk to you guys. And um, somebody asked that question. And on the website, it says only, you can only submit through their portal if you're a U.S. inventor. But the, the gentleman on the line, Rich, actually I think is his name, um, he's the head of acquisitions. And he said, uh, no, when we're in Europe, we have avenues there where we will accept ideas from European inventors as well. So that just proves that you might see something on the site. It might be that or something different. I, I haven't seen very much of that at all, guys. I mean, like, literally, that's the only one I can think of where I saw a website off the top of my head. They said, we only accept ideas from U.S. inventors. Um, toy companies get a lot of ideas from inventors. So they have it very well thought out. Maybe they have their reasons. Um, I don't think you'll find that on, on most of any portals, usually, where they specify that. So I don't see that to be a big problem. But it's also um, a point where you can go around and you could approach somebody within the company and you can ask them if they're who you can submit to. And they're like, say you're from Europe, for example, and who could I submit to? Oh, well, that would be so-and-so. And then you go through a different um, place. You go through an individual. So um, if an individual in the company says, send it over to me, that's okay. So you can go around the portal sometimes and ask, but be polite and ask. And if they say that's okay, obviously them and their boss is okay with it. So don't see it as this like um, black and white thing always, you know, um, it's, I don't see uh, – we've had students in 65 countries, and Hasbro is the only one I remember. Um, now our coaches are in the trenches. They're students every day. I'm not a coach anymore. Um, but I can't remember another one where they said it has to be U.S. inventor. So I don't see that as being a big problem. Um, Gavin, hi, Andrew. Multiple SKU product lines. So SKUs are stock-keeping units, guys. So – if you have a, he's got a bunch of ideas, it sounds like. For example, pet toys, he writes, all, all need individual licensing agreements are all included in the first license under improvements clauses. Um, so he's saying if I license a whole product line, can I do it under one licensing agreement? Of course. Licensing agreements are not like patents, guys. You don't have to write them a certain way. There are no rules. You can put whatever the freaking hell you want in there. So if you want to license an entire product line with whatever terms you and the company agree to, you can definitely do that. I remember we had one of our um, French Canadian students. He actually didn't live in Quebec, but he lived in um, uh, the Yukon, which I think is on the West coast, right over there by Canada. I'm going to feel stupid if that's incorrect. You guys type in if I was wrong about that, but I'm, I'm about 95% sure. Um, and he was living in the Yukon. He licensed an entire line of products, 
of uh, camping products to a company. They saw one. They said, do you have any others? And said another one, another one. Hey, send them all. And they licensed a whole line and they launched a whole line of, of products um, based on what he had submitted. Now, you don't want to typically do that unless they ask you for that. You want to submit one product. That's your introduction to making a relationship with the company. And then if they're interested in the product, usually what I would always advise when I first is to just move forward and closing that deal with that one product. Okay. Now, in this case, they really wanted to see all of it. And, but most of the time, I would just move forward with that one deal. And then once you get that done, you can do others. If it's now um, Gavin's saying, it, maybe it's all kind of related. You know, maybe it made a lot of sense for Gavin, makes sense for Gavin to show it to them or show the whole line. So you have to use your own judgment there. I typically like just one product, see what the interest level is, and you can go back and um, show others. Let's see what else we got here. Um, Tommy says, when I spend, when I send my video to show a company my product, they see my prototype. Some companies suggest I make it better. I thought I was selling my idea, not my prototype. Should my prototype work 100%? Well, you're saying that they see it in the video. I, you know, you can do a prototype in a video where you're making look, look like, looks like it works, but it doesn't work. So sometimes like you have a crude prototype. And you have to film it 10 times before it works right. And that's the one that you show to the company. And that is not disingenuous. That's not being dishonest whatsoever. So, okay, you had a hard time with your skills and what you have access to, or you didn't want to spend a bunch of money um, making this prototype work. But you got it to work one time out of 10. That's the video you sent. Now, you're like, oh, well, just because I'm having a hard time, I know they can make this work. I know they can make some tweaks to it and make it work. So it's not it's not dishonest or disingenuous at all to show them something that's not 100% working, um, but you're showing them how it would work. That's totally okay. Um, so, you know, I would ask for the specifics. You're saying uh, they see my prototype and some companies suggest I make it better. Well, okay, I, I would say, you know, um, I would focus on the conversation about the product and you can have a straight up conversation with them. And sometimes that's best to do on the phone um, where you say, well, how do you want me to make it better? Or they tell you, and you're like, well, yeah, that's, you guys are going to be able to do that much better than myself. And you're going to make it look prettier and you know, you're, you're going to, my mechanism, you're going to change the mechanism to like this. And you make some suggestions. You know, well, I have a hard time with that. Can you guys, can you guys work on that? Um, or do you need me to do a rendering to show you what the final product would look like? Like, what do you need? Like, do you need to show this to other people in the company? Why do you want to make it look better? What do you need? And they might say, yeah, you know, my boss, I think he's going to look at it and go, well, that's kind of crude. And, you know, if you were to get me a rendering, you know, a, a 3D rendering, because you can get those done really affordably, um, that would help my boss visualize it. So you need to ask them what they need. It's going to vary tremendously. So, you know, Tommy, you had enough where you did a video and you showed it to them and they're showing some interest and now they're saying you want to make it better. What's the problem? That's fine. Um, and so sometimes you can get them to do that. And then other times they're going to ask you to do it. So just because they, so a lot of times they'll ask our student to do it and they'll be like, oh, but I think you could do it. Like, what do you need? Like, you got to ask them, like, is this something you're going to show your contract manufacturer in China? Are you going to show it to your boss? You're going to show it in a meeting. Like, what, what are you going to use it for? What do you need? And then you come up with some suggestions and then your suggestions might be a lot easier to implement that you thought and you can help them and you can give that to them. So it varies tremendously. Um, sometimes people want answers to these things and really it's about you asking more questions in order to get them what they want. And inventors usually are so excited that the company's interested. They just listen and they don't ask any questions back to get clarification. I would say that's a huge mistake that inventors make and even our students make and our coaches need to keep on top of our students about to ask for clarification. Um, 
my family will tell you I'm just full of questions where I drive people nuts. I always want to know every little detail, right? So I'm naturally like that, but not most inventors are. And you're all excited that you got interest from a company and you don't want to pester them, but it's okay. Ask them what it's for. So it's a great question, Tom. Um, uh, Tommy, uh, well, this is a different Tommy, actually. Um, there's a couple Tommies here. When should you bring a lawyer when you're negotiating your licensing deal? So first off, the only type of lawyer you ever want to dot the I's and cross the T's on a licensing contract is a licensing attorney. You don't want a patent attorney that does one every three months. You want a licensing attorney that does one all day long. Do you want a patent attorney that does gardening and then they do a patent once a month? No, you don't. And so the only type of attorney you want is a licensing attorney. Now, I'm biased in the way that we help our students is you don't want them either until the very end. So, and I, I you know, maybe some licensing attorneys will be insulted by this, but I, I found this to be true. So attorneys in general will try to nitpick stuff to death to get more billable hours. So what happens a lot of times, you get a licensing attorney involved, they'll start nitpicking the deal to death. So first off, even before you get to the, the deal, right, um, they don't know how to have those discussions. So the other Tommy asked a question about the prototype. So you're in a negotiation then. Do you want a licensing attorney helping you out with that? Like what kind of, what should I get them additional? No, you don't. Um, so what we do is we put you on with our negotiation coach that moves the deal forward. So there's two phases to a licensing negotiation, in my opinion. There's initial interest to contract and contract to close. The initial interest to contract is way more important than the contract to close. Way more. It's not like you get interest and the next day you have a contract. Not even close. Once in a while, a company's like, oh, we got a standard contract. We'll send it over and you start talking on those deal points. Very rarely. So you get them involved in that early stuff. You might as well shoot yourself in the head right now. Don't do that. And even with the contract negotiation as well. Um, so you want to go back and forth. And with so what we do is we put them on with our negotiation coach, Paul. And Paul, with a very level head, helps them go through the back and forth until it gets to the contract. So that's very, very important. And then in the contract, there's a lot of deal points in there. So what he'll usually do is he'll have, um, he'll have the inventor ask the company for their contract. It's much easier to get them to do their contract. Because if you do your contract, uh, they're just going to bloody it, and it's going to cost you a bunch of money, too. It's better to try to fix and repair their contract and what needs to be in there. So Paul will go through from a business perspective um, and look at it and say, okay, from a business perspective, here are some of the different deal points. And then the student will go back and have them change those deal points to so go back, forth, back, forth. And now when a deal is about 95% done, we always tell our students don't sign anything without having a licensing attorney review it. But it's so far done Usually with most of the contracts that we help our students uh, guide them on the business deal points of, um, it only takes a licensing attorney an hour to dot the I's across the T's because we're that thorough with our students on analyzing all the, the business deal points. Um, now, if you get an attorney involved, they start going, I'm fighting for you. <clears throat> I'm fighting for you, right? And they're going to nitpick it to death. And if I wanted to be cynical about it, to get more billable hours because the more they nitpick to death, the more billable hours they get and the more money they make. And before you know it, they pissed off the company, the deal's dead, and you still have a giant bill from a licensing attorney. Then you could easily pay what we charge for an entire six months of help with everything, including our negotiations coach, to a licensing attorney and then some just for getting a little bit of help for them to kill the deal. So I... Our, we help our students get deals to about 95% done and then say, look, you need, don't sign anything before a licensing attorney dots the I's across the T's. And then what we do is we're empowering our students to understand how that back and forth works, all the major deal points in a licensing agreement, all the major business deal points, so that they themselves in the future can get deals to 95% done. And then they only contact the licensing attorney when the deal points are more or less done. Because it, it's not uncommon for some of our students to call 30 companies 
and they get interest from five. And every time you get interest from a licensing attorney uh, from a company, you're calling a licensing attorney, that's going to get expensive real fast. You know, a lot of people are aware of this now. They weren't when we started 20 years ago, but we started, you know, promoting, hey, why are you getting patents? Get a provisional, see if there's interest. It's only 70 bucks to get a provisional patent. You can write it yourself using the software that we give our students. And, and then see if there's interest. And if there is, and they want a patent, then get them to pay for the patent, right? So that's reducing your risk. So we talk extensively about filing provisionals because, you know, that's a very large financial risk, not knowing if there's any interest yet. The other risk is every time you get interest, going to a licensing attorney thinking they're going to close the deal for you. And they're notorious deal killers, not deal closers. You definitely want them dotting the I's and crossing the T's at the end. So in the end, our students, we get them to 95% done. Deals fall off, of course, all the time. Um, but 95% done, and then we say don't sign anything without a licensing attorney going over it. And then in the future, you can do that yourself. Not the first time, probably the second time, but definitely the third time. And, you know, you can become empowered. So every time you get interest, you're not running and giving a bunch of money to an attorney that doesn't understand closing a licensing deal. So, and yes, I think a lot of licensing attorneys don't know how to close a licensing deal. They know how to nitpick contracts and that's not relationship based. That's making people mad and you have to do that. They will get upset about different deal points in the contract at different points, but um, you don't, you don't, you want to come at it with the, how can we work together approach? Not this really aggressive, I'm protecting my client, the licensing attorney, I'm protecting my client, I'm protecting you, I'm fighting for you, I'm going to give you the best deal and so that they're screwed and you're, the, you know, I'm not saying all licensing attorneys do that, but some of them, they give you the impression like that's a good idea and it's not, it's a stupid ass idea. Um, so, so that's our very biased take and it works. If I'll say this, if every one of our students have got a little interest from a, an attorney, from a company, sorry, from a company, if instead of sending to a negotiation coach, Paul, we said, oh, we got interest. Oh, you got to call a licensing attorney. They'll help close the deal. They'll help you with the contract. I bet 80% of those deals that we would close, they would kill. I'm not, I, those aren't statistics, guys. I'm just throwing out a random number there. But I, it would be terrible. We wouldn't have all the success that our students have. And we've got them all that point, and the attorney would kill it. So um, I have talked to attorneys that have admitted that. Um, but they're great with the, with the minute details. Um, okay, I don't understand that question. Okay, uh, Hoover. Hey, I know that you can license without a patent, what about without a PPA? Is it still possible? Yes, it's possible. And again, anything I share with you guys tonight is not legal advice. So please seek the services an attorney, which is a funny thing to say after what I just said. But that's what I have to say. Um, a provisional patent is $70. Why wouldn't you get patent pending status before you showed it? You know, so Hoover, you could not file a provisional. We had another question in that respect too. I forget who it was from. And they said, could I see what the interest level is from a company, listen to their feedback and then get the PPA. And yeah, it would save you 70 bucks. So you could get the PPA after you talk to the company, you can have the paper trail on what you show them and when, so you could prove they're not the first true inventor to, to file if they ran out and filed a PPA, which I would be shocked company did that they're just not fast like we are but it's a risk and for saving 70 bucks you know um i see sometimes i'll see students working in some little gag novelty category where you're going to show 10 products to a company that you already have a relationship with and you don't do that and i'm not telling you guys to do that but i'm saying i see inventors doing that and i don't see it biting them in the butt um so hoover is it possible absolutely would I recommend it? No. Could you take that calculated risk as a business person if you wanted to? Yes. Is that legal advice? No. Um, so yes, you could do that. Uh, you know, I think if you're really, really prolific, it might make sense for you. But again, I'm not going to advise you to do that. 
Um, uh, Spunky Monkey, my first licensed product is coming out this fall. When is a good time to pitch a second product to the same company? Um, I don't want to take attention away from the first product. Good, good point, Spunky. Um, I'm not being a smart ass guy. They just handle Spunky Monkey. Um, isn't that, isn't that a Ben and Jerry's flavor? I think it is. Uh, so yeah, good point. Um, you know, it's not coming out to the fall. So they could be thinking like, well, we don't know how that product is going to do. And, you know, but they're big boys and girls, you know, they, they're going to look at your product. They're going to evaluate it based on if they think that product is going to be successful in the marketplace. Um, I would say when they're ready to go with it, I, I would reach out and pitch them a second product. I think that's perfectly fine. What I would do is ask permission. I would say, I have another product I want to show you. I mean, I would make sure that it's far removed from the first one. Um, if it's an ancillary product or a follow-up product, the first one, no, wait. But if it's really, if it's not going to cannibalize that first one you license, then I, I see no harm in it saying, you know, I know you guys are really busy. I got another product. I don't know if you'd be up for me showing it to you. Let me know if now or later would be good. Just add, be very respectful and ask them. I see no harm in that at all. I think that's fine. Um, so Gary Von Gary, how much of a difference is there between a patent attorney, a licensing attorney, a world? Um, can it be the same person just wearing a different hat for a different scenario? Yeah, a patent attorney could do a licensing contract. They could. Um, a licensing attorney could not do a patent, though, um, unless they're a licensed patent attorney. But a patent attorney could do a licensing contract. But like I said, if they're not doing licensing contracts all day long, don't ever do it. Never have your patent attorney do a licensing contract. Friggin' stupid. I mean, it's not what they do. You know, if you ask them and they're like, oh, yeah, I do 10 a month. Well, okay. But if they're like, well, how many licensing contracts have you done this year? And they're like, well, I did three. Why would you want to do that? It's like asking somebody that throws the javelin to do uh, the 100-yard sprint. That's not what they do. It doesn't make any sense. So it's a good question, Gary Von Gary. Um, <laughs> now, you know, I'm kind of hungry, so now I'm thinking about Ben and Jerry's. I think, I don't know if Spunky Monkey. It's something else. If somebody could type in at some point, what is the Baron Ben and Jerry's flavor that has to do with monkey? It was I don't think it was Spunky Monkey. It was Chunky Monkey. I got it. You guys don't need to type it in now. It's Chunky Monkey. Um, I think, unless you guys correct me if I'm wrong. Um, let's see. Okay, Russell says, "Good, great question. If a company does not advertise or indicate they are looking for inventors, does that mean they don't license products? Absolutely, positively, 100% not. Huge numbers of companies where if you contact the right marketing manager, they'll take a look at your idea and they'll license it. They may have licensed many more. Huge numbers of companies do not have a page on their website. They do not have a submission portal. It's not mentioned anywhere, but they're open to licensing. Most companies these days, if you approach the right person in the right way, they're open in one respect or another to licensing. It's, it's not the non-invented here syndrome. When Stephen and I started 20 years ago, that was not the case. And you go back 25, 30 years ago, it was, it was the exception, not the norm. It's the norm to accept ideas from the outside, but they don't have a page on their site. Tons of companies don't. So, Russell, you're really limiting your list of potential licensees. If you just go with companies that put the word out there that they're opening ideas, don't do that. If they're in a major retailer you want to be in, you should approach them. Could take a quick look at their site. Sometimes it'll say we don't accept outside ideas, or um, there's an unacceptable submission portal that says we'll pay you a Mac. This is crap. Never do this. So I'll tell you what I think is crap. Personally, my biased viewpoint. If it says, oh well, yeah, we'll accept ideas. And we'll pay you a maximum of five thousand dollars. No, screw that. That's ridiculous. That says we don't respect you as inventors if they don't want to pay you royalties for as long as they sell the product. Or, um, or that they own whatever you send them. Um, you know. Now, sometimes people don't read those right. It looks terribly nasty, 
Um, and one of the big things that people think looks nasty is they can't agree to keep it confidential. That's actually fairly common. And if you've got intellectual property, if you filed a provisional or have a patent, is it critical? Not necessarily. Um, so again, that's not legal advice. Seek the service of an attorney if you want legal advice. Um, so, but sometimes people look at submission portals and they think, oh, that's so terrible. And I look at it and I'm like, oh, that's pretty normal. So, um, uh, yeah, so, uh, hi, Andrew, Jamie here. Have your students experienced any problems with deliveries of licensed products made in China because of the current business climate regarding tariffs? Well, those tariffs were there before COVID as well. I think we, like our negotiation coach, he was actually supposed to be off today, but he still talked to three I think it was actually four, including the other one, four students in active negotiations on his day off. Um, so we have a lot of, of students in negotiations right now. I think what's going to happen is, is it'll take them a little bit longer to launch. Like normally they would launch within a certain time frame. And because of some slowdowns, it might take them an additional three, four months or something like that. Our students are okay with that. Our students are level headed. <laughs> you know, they just, they're, Hey, I don't care. As long as they license the product, I know what's going on. I know if it takes an extra three or four months to launch the product, perfectly fine with that. Um, I haven't heard specific stories about that, but I wouldn't be surprised if there might be um, slowdowns here or there. There is. There just is with the supply chains with some um, companies. But I don't think that should be a um, any reason why you shouldn't be licensing now. As I've stated in some of these other Q&As, our students are able to get a hold of marketing managers at these companies easier than ever. Now, there's some you can't get a hold of, especially at smaller companies that are in crisis mode. But these marketing managers at home, they're paying more attention to their email. They're paying more attention to their LinkedIn. You can get, and this is a big part of licensing, guys, getting no's. They're getting no's quicker, which is great. So you're not sitting around waiting. And so our students are loving that. So, and because you only need one yes, and they're getting deals on the table too. So, it's a great time to be licensing, which is a weird-ass thing to say, I know, but it's true. Um, but will there be delays in them launching the product with some of these companies? Yeah, and they're really this, I think the, the companies that are going to suffer under COVID are the ones that are the really small companies. Um, they're the ones that are suffer. But for the most part, those aren't the ones you guys are licensing to anyway, because the whole point of licensing is tapping into this big company's money workforce and distribution. So you're always trying to go for the bigger companies before the smaller ones. Small licensing deals better than no deal at all. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, for the most part, it's not creating a problem for our students. Um, and uh, the other thing that, I, that I've said on some of these other Q&As is part of licensing is getting a lot of nonspecific no's. Oh, not at this time, not a right match for us. They give these generic no's. And I would not be surprised that marketing managers who would normally give those no's for the same product are now saying, oh, because of COVID, because it's something that people easily accept and just go on their merry way, right? And so I'm telling our students, it, it, I don't care if they say it's COVID. Now, for percentage of them, it might be true. It might be like at this company, that marketing manager is in crisis mode. They're trying to take the company a different direction based on their manager's and they're saying because of COVID. Now, other ones will just use it as an excuse. So it's just a different type of no, but one still licensed it. So um, it says my connection's unstable. Wait while reconnecting. I think I may have lost you there for a second. Sorry about that. So I'm going to restate what I just said. So before you reach out to 30 companies, just a random example, and two show interest, but 28 say no. And maybe you end up moving forward and doing a deal with one of those two and the other one falls off. Well, now 28 still say no, but a percentage is say because of COVID instead of, oh, not right match for us, not at this time, we're focusing on other things. But two still showed interest and you still close the deal with one. So you're just going to get that. I would be surprised if certain people aren't using that as an alternate thing to say. Whether or not it's true, sometimes it will be true. But the truth is, our students are closing deals just as much as ever. Um, so this is a great time to be licensing. And they're able to get feedback from companies faster and knows faster, which is, you know, I don't want to get any knows, but it's part of the game.
Um, Daniel says, if a company won't want to pay royalties and they want to pay for the idea, how do you estimate a good price just to sell it outright, basically, what is he saying? It's, it's never the direction you guys want to go, guys. It's not what you want. And so this is, I'm going to be honest with you guys. Um, we never take our students that direction. We say never bring it up. Do not bring it up. If they bring it up, you're going to go with royalties. When I get a small royalty per unit, as you guys make money, I make money. They will never pay you what it's worth. So I think that what happens is that I've noticed, I've talked to people that are our students, they see you don't know what you're doing. And they're interested in the product and they feel like they can get away with offering you some ridiculous amount just to buy the invention. So if, you know, I realize that not all of you are going to become our students. So I'm just going to give you my best advice. Say, no, I would rather license the product as you guys make money. I, I make money. That's the way I do licensing deals. Talk like you're an expert. Um, say, I, I think it would be a, you're not going to want to pay the whatever amount it would be. And, and I would avoid even giving it because it's going to be a ridiculous number and they're not going to pay it. Um, now, the only time in which it makes sense for them to pay it, you've been running a business, you have 10,000 units, distribution in, in 20 stores, and you've got inventory. Of course, you're going to get upfront money if you've been selling it yourself and you've got all that, you've got product and all that. But most of you are following the event right approach and you've just got a patent or a provisional or a prototype and asking for upfront money is stupid. Asking to pay for your patent form of upfront money is fine. And I'm just exaggerating to make a point to emphasize the point here. Now, if you want to go that direction, Daniel, great. You'll probably never be happy with it. If you're absolutely desperate for money and you're like, I'd be fine with five grand, but why are you going to do all that work and like get five grand for your invention? or even 10 or 20, you know, but that's a decision you need to make. Um, but on that same invention that they're going to give you 10,000 over the period of five years, maybe you were, would have earned a quarter million dollars, you know, and you should run those numbers in your own head on what they would earn at that certain royalty rate. Maybe they are too. But what we found is that when we teach our students to conduct, how to conduct themselves and our negotiation coaches guiding them through it, because we're guiding it, we're controlling it, for the lack of a better word, it's not coming up. It comes up with rookie inventors that don't know how to guide the conversation. You know? Um, uh, okay, so let's see. Uh, let's see, so many questions coming here. Uh, in Ben Factor, Jamie here. Thank you for this such a great detailed answer. Yeah, I'm pretty sorry, guys. Hopefully, I'm not too detailed, guys. But you know, one of you asked the question. Most of you are probably thinking it, especially on some of this stuff. Isn't stuff people other than us typically cover? Um, uh, Susie, what if I would like to provide proof of concept and would like a lab? to have the product tested, how do I do that? Um, it depends on the type of product, you know? I mean, if it's a new soda, you need to have somebody formulate it. Um, if it's a medical product, you know, it's gonna depend on the industry completely. Um, and in some industries, it's gonna be important. Most industries, it's not. Um, and it's probably gonna be expensive to have a lab tested. Another way of doing it is put it in the hands of some users, have them sign non-disclosure agreements, Get some testimonials of people that have used it. So, um, you know, because uh, if they have to, if you have, if a lab's going to test it, you'd have to have a work prototype for them to test it. So why not give it to some users and give you testimonials? And that's going to be a lot cheaper than a lab testing it. Now, maybe it needs to be tested because it's going to make your skin break out or this or that. So, I, you know, I can't really go into detail there, Susie, because it's really going to depend on um, it's really going to depend on on what kind of product it is and what kind of testing you're talking about. Um, okay, Susie wrote it's medical related. So um, yeah, and you know 
you're making medical claims and things. Now, one way you could kind of fish off the pier using the event right approach, just because you're selling the benefit, you know, it is to, if it's okay, have some like people again test it and get some testimonials and you know make sure it's safe and all that. Um, but it's probably going to be pretty damn expensive uh, to do medical testing. And I would rather that you get the interest from the company and let them do that medical testing. And anything that needs to be FDA approved, um, sometimes medical companies will give you a hard time. Oh, we need to get FDA approval. Well, we had a student recently where that was the case. And what I said to him is, well, yeah, all their products need to be FDA approved. What that really means is they're not willing to go through the efforts and the cost to get that testing done. So they're not that interested in your product. Because if they really believed in the product, they would spend the money because that's the business they're in. All their medical products need to be FDA approved. So I told the inventor, I said, well, what that really means is they're not willing to spend the money. So they don't believe in it enough because every single one of their products needs to be FDA approved. So, um, uh, let's see. Uh, well, Chad wrote a good answer there. It's nice, Susie's. Chad's helping out. Universities tend to have programs that may help with testing. Yeah, that's a good idea, Chad. I like that. So, Susie, uh, Chad's saying you might want to go to a university. Um, and Riri says, love the details. Now, yeah, I'm very detail-oriented, guys. Um, um, Zam says, are you able to get two licenses interest at the same time? How do you turn the other one down gracefully? So without going to excruciating detail, you move forward with them both as if the other one doesn't exist, and naturally they tend to fall off. So we get students all the time that have interest from multiple companies, but being in the final stages of a licensing deal with more than one is very rare. So you don't want to go, oh, I love this company, number one, and well, hey, guys, um, you say to number two, Number one, you know, this other company's interested, and I just want to let you know, and I really want to license them. Don't do that. Move forward as if the other one's going to fall through, because quite often they do. And they're going to invest. Oh, we decided not to move forward. You still got the other one. So that's okay. You haven't signed anything with them. You have no obligation to them. Now, where it gets a little dicey, they start moving forward, spending tons of money on a prototype or something like that. So you got to watch that. But quite often you're in discussions and they haven't spent a bunch of money. Them going and getting quotes in China or something is not the massive effort I'm talking about. But if they're going to spend 10 grand on a prototype, you know, that, that, starts, that starts to be concerning. And it's great because they're spending money on it. So that's a great indicator. Um, so, you know, and you could still move forward with them. And it's, it's not something that is typically a problem. By and large, I'll tell you to move forward with both of them as, and you're going to expect one of them to fall through or you've got four or five. Initial interest, oh, we're kind of interested, let's talk. You could have 10 interested. I'd say don't even mention the other ones. That's fine. But the final stage is pretty It's almost never a problem. Um, I can only think of two, maybe three situations in 20 years. A couple of them happened recently, actually. But the student was really smart. We guided him. Um, and in one situation, the company was a little upset. But, hey, that's part of business. People will be a little upset with you at times, and it turned out fine. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, Molo. I have improved tool used to worldwide daily. And so he has a tool that's used worldwide daily. Okay. Um, that gives, don't say things like that, Molo, because it sounds like I have something everybody will want. Um, that gives an extra accessibility. Okay. I don't know what that means. Should I contact as many manufacturers of the said tool or seek out an exclusive partnership? Um, so I have a working prototype. So great. Um, so you're going to want to contact any company that could be distributing and selling that kind of tool. So yes, you should contact as many manufacturers as you can that would make that type of tool. Now here's the mistake people make. They don't have to make that exact same type of tool. 
Uh, they can make stuff in that space. They're like, oh, well, we never wanted to do a box wrench that was a box wrench like that. Like I got these box wrenches the other days where it's just the head, and then you could attach a ratchet to it. Just personally, I got that. And I'm like, you know, so let's say you got some unique thing with a box wrench where it's just the head, but yours attached a different way. And they're like, but, you know, but I want, but we've never done one of those before. But, yeah, yours is so unique. I might want to get into that. So don't go with people just selling pretty much this exact same thing with a variation, but kind of in the same space. They're in hand tools, you know, or what have you. So, yes, you should approach everybody. And it's not a partnership. It's a license, Molo. And licensing, as I said at the top of the hour, they provide the money. And you see, that's where rookie inventors, and this is helpful for everybody. So when you guys ask a question like that, I love it because everybody else can learn. You don't tell them you want to do a partnership. They don't want to partner with an independent inventor, and now you're their business partner. No big tool manufacturer wants to do that. And if they do, they're stupid, I think. I'm saying that just as kind of a joke. But they shouldn't be partnering with you, you know, unless you, you've got all sorts of manufacturing abilities and you got all this stuff. You're doing a license. So you provided the product and they're going to invest their money, their workforce and their existing distribution. So um, but don't use the word partnership. Don't do that. License. And some marketing managers literally don't know what the term license means. Oh, well, it's going to be a reasonable royalty per unit. So you pay me a small amount every time you sell a unit every three months. And then, of course, they're going to say, well, what would that be? And I say, well, it all depends on. What, but you said small, but it all depends on what you're going to do with it. I need to know more about what you're going to do with it. We'll talk about that later and extend your term sheet at some point. Oh, okay. So now they're not telling their boss, well, we got this independent inventor dude, you know, that wants to do a, partner, a partnership. And they're like, well, what's his LLC? How well funded is he? And they're asking all these questions that don't matter with licensing when you're just bringing the product to the table. It doesn't, you don't need a company. You don't need employees. You don't need to be funded. You don't need to do all that. So little things like this make a big difference because sometimes you get a marketing manager that that loves your product, but the company's licensed five products, but that marketing manager has been coming a year and a half and they've never done a single licensing deal, right? So so that's that, that can happen. So be careful about the words you use. Um, The, the tool I made can be cannot be worked around any further, guaranteed. Okay, that's great. Does that deserve a better percentage of the final agreement? Yeah. I mean, if you think you have rock-solid patents, a patent on it, um, can you ask for a slightly higher royalty? Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Um, okay. Um, some inappropriate questions here. Uh, uh, Zam says, has a student ever mentioned that they were an event rights student during a negotiation? No, I, I, you know, we're not that big guys that some individual marketing manager at some big company is going to know who event right is. So no, I wouldn't mention that. I would say I have licensing advisors. Sure. Um, and Molo said, duly noted about the partnership term. Thanks. Yeah. And that's helpful for you guys too. Cause when you come, I, I have this, so people that aren't students, inventors that aren't students, this is very helpful. Um, when you start talking to a company and you're not making it clear what your goal is, they might go, oh, so are you going to sell this to us? Can we order 10,000 units? It gets the whole conversation. It derails the whole thing. When you say you want to do a partnership or they're not clear that you want to sell them the product as opposed to license it. And if you're not clear about these things, it's going to mess you guys up and it's going to hinder the, the talks from moving forward. And it's they're going to go, well, this is a waste of time. This guy doesn't know what he wants, and I don't know what I want either. I love the product, but, geez, I don't think I want to get in a partnership with this guy. It doesn't seem like, you know, he's a really business-savvy person, whereas if you're licensing, you don't need to come across as incredibly business-savvy. You just need to, wow, that's a good idea. You're just going to license it. Oh, we're going to do it. Oh, okay. You know, so these things are very, very important. Um uh, Susie says, what type of person can provide a prototype, an industrial engineer, or how de detailed does it need to be? It, it, there's all sorts of different prototypes, Susie, so it really depends on what kind of prototype it is. 
Um, industrial designers are a little different than engineers. They have design skills, can make things look pretty. Or engineers can make things functional, but might look ridiculous because they're an engineer and they're not thinking like a marketing person or a designer that makes it beautiful. And so it really, really, really depends. Um, so we're going to wrap up here because we're at the top of the hour. Last one. Um, well, Abdul asked this one twice. Are we required to draw the electrical components in the specification drawing? For example, if I have an electrical toy idea that involves pressing buttons that produces sound. So with a provisional patent, Abdul, there is no formal requirements. You can do whatever you want. Um, you know, I, 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 would, I would do it well enough so that somebody skilled in the art could look at it and probably make it. Um, so you need to consult an attorney on that. I can't give you the specifics. But with a provisional patent, there are no requirements. But you want somebody to be able to look at it and be able to make it with what you wrote. Um, or at least have an idea of covering those critical components. Um, Spunky Monkey, thank you so much for doing these, Andrew. You're the best. Um, uh, Chad, when would you encourage a student to start an actual business and not, a, not do a licensing deal? Um, you need to look at your life, Chad, and figure out what's right for you. Don't just do what's right for your product. So if you can't dump your day job, if you can't dump your other business, when you launch a product, you know, on any serious level, that's the only thing you're going to be doing. You can start a micro business, sell a few here and there on a website nobody visits, maybe a few on eBay or something. But you can't launch a new product without hundreds of thousands of dollars at the very least on any serious level and 60 to 80 hour work weeks you know, or at least 60, at least. So if you're not ready to do that, license it. You know, don't go, well, I'm going to do what's right for my product. Do what's right for you and your life. Don't sacrifice your life when you're not wired up to run a business or you don't want to run a business. Look at what you need to do to run a business. It's crazy. It's absolutely nuts. You know, if you're not into employees and, you know, manufacturers rep that says he's going to sell it here and there at all these retailers and doesn't do crap, locks up that, 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 um, territory and now you're screwed because you have inventory and you signed the wrong contract. There's so many problems with a running a business. Now, if you're like, I love, I want, I want to run a business. I want to have all these employees. I want to create this company and be in charge of it. And I, I'm more excited about that than the product. Then maybe you want to run a business, but if you're more excited about the product than the running the business part, it's, I, I say this to exaggerate. It's very little about, the product at that point, I'm saying it to exaggerate. Of course, it's about the product, but it's more about your ability to run a business. No matter how great the product is, if you suck at running a business, and you don't have the right people helping you. You don't have God knows how much money, which it takes a lot of freaking money to run a business. You should not be running a business. Most inventors, it's about the idea. And, oh, I'd rather have them run the business, their money, their risk, their workforce, their existing distribution. Also, it's very hard to run a one product company. You work your butt off to get into retailers, they won't keep you in there very long um, if you only have one product because they have other vendors that have 15 products. They're, they're going to make them happy over you. So they'll kick you off the shelf, even if your product's selling well, to make those other vendors happy. So it's brutal running a business. Um, I would say if you're younger, if you're extremely driven, if you always wanted to run your own business and you're more excited about running a business and all the people that you have to work with to do that than the actual product itself, then you might be a right candidate. But be talk to somebody that's run a business and launched a product. They will tell you how brutal it is. Um, and you need to hear from them. That's not us. We just do licensing. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close it out here, guys. Um, I'm just going to say, and I've said this before on a call or two, that you know, for, for probably almost all of you or most of you, coming up with ideas is part of who you are. It's not... It, it, it's, it's part of who you are. And licensing, what licensing can do is can empower you to stop just dreaming up ideas and actually work on them because it's very low risk financially. You have to put your time into it and you license to that big company. So licensing, um, when people find out about it, is very empowering. And it's, it's such a part of who you are. You're never going to stop coming up with ideas 
licensing can be your business model for the rest of your life. Keep your day job, keep your other business you're running, whatever it is you're doing, you could always be licensing on the side. And then maybe even ramp it up and you're working on licensing four or five products at once, once you, you know, every year or 12 products a year, whatever it is that you want to do. It's extremely empowering in that you don't need tons of money, but you do need to put the work in. Yes, you're putting all the work on them, but you need to do the work to close the deal. And it's, it's not that much about the actual invention. It's more about the work to put in to get that thing licensed. You know, and of course, your invention is important. You can't have a ridiculous idea. But if you could have a great idea and you don't do the work, you'll never get there. And you don't do the right things. And we talked about some silly little things about, you know, you talk to a company and you say you want to partner. Wrong thing to say. Most of you would think, well, oh, I didn't think that was the wrong thing to say. But now I know, Andrew. So there's a lot of little things you can mess up on. Um, so if you guys want our help, you can go to InventRight and check out our coaching page. Um, I'm really enjoying these. We do a lot of free stuff. We've got a YouTube show. I don't know how many videos we have, 500, something like that. Don't quote me on that. Watch those videos. You can read our books, which is very low price point. One Simple Idea is kind of a flagship book. Become a Professional Inventor is great, very inspirational as well. Um, you can go on our website and find links to all those. Go to inventright.com. Um, and so those are some low-cost things. And then our coaching program, which is obviously a lot more involved you talk to your coach every week for six months and they're turning you into a pro. And our goal is for you to say, I get it guys. I don't need you anymore because you got that real life experience. One thing that we found is the only way that inventors learn to license is through real life experience. You can read books, you can watch YouTube shows all day long. You think you know it, you don't really know it till you do it. And most people are only comfortable with a coach holding their hand through it. But I encourage you to do it on your own as well. And with the advice that we're giving you, you're way better off than the advice that others are giving you because there's a lot of misinformation about licensing. So do it. If you can't afford our coaching program, please, please do it on your own. It's so unlikely that some company will rip you off. You're going to rip yourself off by not working on your invention. So go for it. You need a certain comfort level to get there. I understand that. Hopefully, through a YouTube show and our books, you get to that comfort level. You do it on your own. If you want more help, you can get our help. So I want everybody to take care and keep inventing. Thank you, Chad, for the kind words there. Thank you, uh, Elisa. Um, uh, uh, Thomas says, when's the next live stream? I'm going to do it again next Wednesday. I, I can't promise we'll do this forever. We'll do it again next Wednesday. Tommy, you're welcome. Um, uh, Russell, you're welcome. Um, thank you. You said you were very impressed with our company and the support staff. Thank you. Um, all right. Everybody take care, keep inventing, and we'll catch you with you next time. See ya. Bye.